If you have a Bible, I would encourage you now to open it to the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, we are in chapter 3. We're going to try to cover as much ground as we can out of chapter 3 and 4. Let me say that it was uh, a joy to be in Thurless, Ireland for three weeks. Uh, time spent with uh, our, one of our grandchildren, our grandson Jimmy. And uh, we had a bonding experience with him. And uh, I don't know, I think we miss him more than he misses us. But for a minute there, uh, we enjoyed every second of our time. So thankful for those who covered for me, especially Dan in preaching and the young man from Westminster Seminary who I understood came from Birmingham, Alabama, but did not talk like it at all. But he seemed like a good young man and a heart for the Lord and a, a growing preacher, a sound preacher. So we were grateful for that. Today, however, we're going to be looking at uh, David and his rise uh, and ascension to power and to the kingdom. But we're going to see that it's not a straight line. It's not clean. It's not neat. It's anything but. Uh, everything in this narrative up to this point is nothing but a struggle. And so with that said, uh, I will begin reading. What I'm going to do is read a section, talk about it, and then come back to the next session, read it, and then talk about it. Hopefully that will help us move through the chapter faster. I don't know, but this is God's word. Hear it now. There was a long war between the house of Saul in the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. And his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Apatal, and the sixth, Ithrim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So, we see David's kingdom begin to expand. Now, there's something I've noticed about the Bible that I want you to just listen to me for a second that will help you in reading these long narrative passages uh, to get the story consistently straight. The Bible is a book in many ways that can be looked at a thousand different ways. It can be looked at covenantally. It can be looked at redemptive historically. It can be looked at biblical theologically. And, and a biblical theological way of looking at the Old Testament would go something like this. God establishes order. Chaos ensues. God overcomes the chaos, resulting in peace and rest. Now, the opening chapter of the Bible does this. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what happens in the second verse? And the earth was without form and was void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth. 
We don't know what happened between verse 1 and verse 2. Many people have imagined many different things. But the world was created. Maybe that's a summary statement and then goes about telling us how it happened. But there was chaos in the beginning, and God ordered chaos. In six days, he ordered creation. He formed it, he filled it, and he brought it to what? Rest. You'll see that pattern over and over and over again in the Bible. And I have listed here about 20 examples of it. I'll give you just a few. What happens in um, Genesis chapter 3? Well, God's created the world. He's formed it. He's filled it. He's placed uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. He's given them work to do. He's given them one commandment to obey. They disobey the commandment, and as a result of that, chaos happens. Everything falls apart. We have no idea how destructive sin is. We don't know. I mean, we see it as such a minor thing. We do not understand how sin, and Rick has mentioned this a number of times, quoting R.C. Sproul, who was my seminary uh, systematic theology professor, over and over again insists that when we do something against God or his law, we do not flourish as people. When we violate God's law, it hurts us. It destroys us. And so the compassionate response to people, as we heard in Sunday school, who are adopting a whole new way of understanding their sexuality is to respond to that person by saying, I couldn't condemn you because I'm a sinner just like you. I need Jesus to forgive me as much as you need Jesus to forgive you. But if you continue in that pattern, I must tell you with all compassion, and yet love in my heart, you're going to destroy yourself. And so they did that. God kicked them out of the garden, so to speak. He expelled them from Eden, and east of Eden, everything gradually got worse until chapter 6 comes along. And there, God sends a flood, brings judgment, establishes order, starts all over again with Noah, and yet the minute he gets out of the ark, something terrible happens. Sin comes in, creates chaos. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, we have the Tower of Babel. Man united against building a ziggurat to the heavens for the purpose of displacing God himself. And God comes and does what? Confuses their languages. And as a result, they can no longer unite together and <clears throat> creation is spread. And so he starts over again with Abraham. Now, I could give a whole sermon on this, but the point that I'm trying to make is if you look at David's life, you're going to see moments in which it appears there's order, that God has created something. Something has come into being, and it's wonderful and it's great, but not too long after that, chaos ensues, and destruction happens. You're going to see it in this very chapter where David is growing stronger and stronger, yet you're going to see chaos ensue. And then God 
brings, as it were, new birth and establishes rest and peace. He does that in your own heart too. Not just the macrocosm of God's work in the universe and the world, but the microcosm of your own heart. You yourself experience new creation if you come to Jesus Christ. You experience sin, which creates chaos in your life, and God in mercy comes and forgives and establishes you in rest and peace. But we will never know it fully and permanently until Revelation 21 and 22 becomes a reality. The new heavens and the new earth are established, and God dwells together with man. Now, I thought I would give you that as sort of a backdrop to understanding what's going on here in this text. And so, this chapter marks, in a certain way, the conclusion of the story of conflict between Joab and Abner that began uh, at the Battle of Gibeon. We saw that the last time I preached, which was four weeks ago. And so... Uh, what's happened in this narrative is going to be rather remarkable but what we begin to see is a discussion of David's family David's family has grown and it's a constant theme throughout this section of 2nd Samuel Yahweh was building David's house and the growth of his house often uh, is often noted after a passage about victory in the war against the house of Saul the sequence from victory to building the house would be picked up again after David defeats the Philistines. But this is sort of an exodus motif. Uh, the Lord triumphed over Egypt with plagues and brought his people out for the purpose of occupying uh, with, with great plunder which he devoted to the building of his house, that is the tabernacle. But we encounter an obvious problem here. We have learned in 1 Samuel that David already had three wives. Michal, the daughter of Saul, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal. Here, however, we find out that he has six different wives. And this didn't even include Michal, Saul's daughter. Polygamy was forbidden to Israel's kings mainly upon the basis that it would attract them to other gods, that is, foreign women, but also violating Genesis uh, 1 and the teaching of Scripture in Genesis 2 on marriage. Um, if you look closely at the narrative here, you can see that even Amnon and Absalom are listed here, two sons of David who would later be in deadly conflict with one another. Importantly, the list of David's sons comes after a summary statement about a long war of succession, and the list shows that David has several potential successors, as well as several firstborns who would lay claim to his throne. Now, you know, I mean, you've watched and kept up with and read about Henry VIII, right? How many wives did Henry VIII have? Six. David's already got seven. But what are they already looking for? They're looking for what? Successors to the throne. They're looking for the seed. They're looking for a dynasty. They're looking for that to occur. It's a very political move on David's part. And to even go further with this, if you'll look at who he married, what he's basically doing is marrying people in different parts of the nation, 
of Israel because he's only the king over Judah. But what he's doing in marrying these different women is establishing power and strength ultimately to tighten the noose on Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who was king over all Israel. And so David politically, astutely here, uses something that will eventually, as usual, backfire in many ways upon him. By the way, just because we like David and just because God has chosen David doesn't mean that David is sinless. He is not sinless. And David is a man after God's own heart, not because God looked at him and said, oh, David, you love me. You're a man whose greatest desire in life is to pursue my heart. No, what that means is, is that David was chosen by God, chosen because of God's heart toward him. And that David's life was an expression, just like mine is and just like yours is, of the grace and mercy of God. So he's no hero in that regard. David had an eye for beauty, but the multiplication of wives probably was as much political as it was uh, to fulfill some sort of vigorous sexuality. And so the uh, text ends with David's family. Uh, He's established a dynasty. Uh, He appears to be in a good position. His family has been strengthened, and it seems like he's on the verge of being ready. But then, escorted to the stage, comes one Abner. And I want you to look with me again in chapter 3 and verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a, a dog's head of, to Judah, of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends and have not given you into the hand of David and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner and more if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba, meaning the whole from north to south, the whole kingdom. Uh, and uh, Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Ishbosheth inherited from his father Saul paranoia. <laughs> paranoia will destroy you. And he definitely had that. And Abner, I think, after so long, began to look at the situation and say to himself, This guy's a loser. I mean, he's a real loser. We're never going to get going with what my intention was to get it going. This guy's just not going to make it. Now, did Abner actually sleep with this concubine? The text never says. Some would argue, of course not. He showed total loyalty. He, He proclaims loyalty, but he got awfully angry about being accused of it. Now, Abner at this point is probably 80 years old or older. But he had a swagger about him. He had something about, when Abner walked into the room, you paid attention. You knew somebody of gravitas was there. 
Abner was a champion. He was a great soldier, a great warrior, a great father in Israel. And so Abner, at this point, is looking and seeing and measuring what's going on. And so Abner decides to take action here because of his assessment of the situation. How dare you accuse me, Ishbosheth, of any kind of disloyalty? Abner, and everybody knew it, was the power behind Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was nothing without Abner. And now, whether he did what he was accused of or not, Abner, verse 12, sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good. I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I will require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Mihal. I'm using the Hebrew pronunciation. I know all the rest of you going, Michael, why is he saying Mihal? Right? See, I can read your minds. No, I really can't. But uh, Saul's daughter, when you come to see, well, why did David want Mihal? Was it because he'd been shamed by losing her? I mean, what is his passion here? Why does he make it a condition of the covenant? Abner here is offering him the kingdom in full, and yet he draws this condition you must fulfill in order for me to accept this covenant with you. Why? Because David, again, was thinking about the kingdom and uniting the kingdom, and if he could be restored. And by the way, Michal was righteously and rightfully the wife of David. He, she was taken away from him. But he had six other wives. But apparently he wanted Michal because Michal would accomplish this for him. It would connect him to the house of Saul, thereby uniting the kingdom that currently was under the uh, uh, kingship of Saul through Ishbosheth, and he knew that would be a factor in uniting them. And so David is thinking, if I can just get this girl in. Now, how did his plan go? Because in order for that to really happen, Mihal would have had to have children, and she died what? Childless. So his strategy didn't work, even though he insisted upon it. But we'll see from the text as we continue to go. And uh, then David, uh, well, he says, and he said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, this is verse 13, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring me hall, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. That's quite a price. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her, all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. It's interesting that the text focuses more on the brokenheartedness of uh, Paltiel more than it does any expression from Michal. And Abner, verse 17, conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant, David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. 
Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. And when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I shall arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. See that word peace? So we've had a moment of uh, order. We've had chaos and now we're seeing peace. It looks like everything now is set to go, and David is on the winning side. But keep reading. You always got to keep reading the Bible. Always got to keep reading. Just then, servants of David arrived with Joab. You know who Joab is, don't you? Joab's one of the captains, a nephew of David, who was a ruthless warrior, who wanted to kill Abner in the first place back in the, uh, chapter 2 of Second Samuel. But Joab was, uh, I almost said jonesing for, I don't know why I thought of that, but uh, Joab wanted Abner dead as an item of revenge in his house. He wanted to fulfill the revenge because you remember Abner killed his brother when he took the butt of his spear, stopped suddenly, and Asahel ran into the spear, ran through his middle, killed him dead and Joab swore at that point you kill my brother I'm killing you and so Joab comes back to town he does not have a good attitude toward Abner he does not trust Abner he does not see Abner neutrally he sees Abner only cynically he sees him through the lenses of the wound that he suffered from him in the loss of his brother you do realize don't you that the way you see people often is colored by whatever you perceive they've done against you. And that was certainly true in Joab's case. And Joab was very difficult for David to control. I don't know why he yielded to him as much as he did, but you're going to see in a moment, Joab takes matters into his own hand. But Joab is upset because he sees Abner probably as a potential replacement for himself. Maybe he would be secretary of state or head of the department of defense over all Israel. And now Joab would have to be in subservience to Abner. But let's see. So the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he's gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and says, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, and you know you're going out, and you're to know you're going out, you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. So Joab has a whole total different view on why Abner was there. He's just coming to do reconnaissance, a reconnaissance mission to see what you've got in order to finish you off. And you send him away in peace. What in the world are you thinking? So, Joab 
came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David didn't know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. That's a pretty serious curse, isn't it? So Joab and Abishai's brother killed Abner because he had put their brother Asael to death in the battle of Gibeon. The wound and the place that Abner was struck in the Hebrew says under the fifth rib. So under the fifth rib is where the stabbing or the sword went. Exactly the same place that the spear of Abner had gone through uh, the stomach of Asael. And so now Joab has his revenge. But David, this does not sit well with David at all. Because David had realized now that he was in the process of receiving what God had promised to him way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when he promised and anointed him to be king over all Israel. And here it is at the doorstep and this knucklehead Joab shows up, doesn't hear the rest of the story, doesn't even try to find out why David had sent him away in peace and he reacts to it like an animal, he's driven, he's a soldier, and he acts before doing any kind of thinking or checking out because he's already bitter, and he does something that disrupts and destroys the unity of all Israel. There's chaos again. You see, it, it just keeps happening. God brings order, chaos occurs, things keep happening. So again, continue with me as we read. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. Uh, they buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before you, uh, the wicked, you have fallen. One of the ironies of Abner's death is where he was killed. He was killed at the gate of the city. What happens at the gate? At the city gate was like a court where issues of righteousness and judgment were taken uh, for people to get uh, civil or criminal charges dealt with. And it was also a safe haven for someone who had uh, involved himself in manslaughter, and yet it was in an alcove somewhere near the city gate that Abner was killed. And so there's immense irony here even in the death of Abner and in the mourning and grieving over him and the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day but David swore saying God do so to me and more also if I taste breath or anything else till the sun goes down 
And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. And everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner to death, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. That is Joab. Uh, Abishai and Asael, those are the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Now, I'm going to read through chapter 4 and then sort of give you a summary of what this teaching has to do with you and me living in 2022. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of the raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name uh, of the other, Rechab, the sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin, from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been their sojourners to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled as she fled in her haste and fell, and he became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. We'll hear more on him later. Now the sons of Rimon, the Berothite, Rechab, and Baanah set out, and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get weak, and they stabbed him in the stomach again under the fifth rib. Then Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day, and Saul, on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought it was bring, he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more? When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him, and they cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Now, that's a lot of material, right? A lot of things going on here. But what I want you to get to see, you to see is the back and forth of it all, the struggle of it all. Nothing comes easy. And in conclusion, I want to talk about one thing, and that is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty has to do with his reign or rulership over all that is. There is nothing uh, that exists out from under God's sovereignty. 
God uh, is absolutely sovereign. There's not one iota, not one atom, not one thing that is out from under its power. And so God is sovereign, which means this in very contemporary, flat, plain language. God is in charge, and you are not. God is in charge, and I am not. Did you hear what I said? God is in control. You are not. God is in control. I am not. When you look at this story, you see some rather remarkable things going on. Throughout this chapter, there's very little reference to Yahweh's role in the events as God's promises are fulfilled through the unwitting actions of sinful people. David's chief rivals to the throne are removed through murderous actions of Joab and the two servants of Ishbosheth. Both murders are undertaken for personal reasons. Joab murders Abner, as we said, to avenge the death of his brother. And the two wicked servants of Ishbosheth murder Saul's son in order to obtain a reward. David and the narrator characterize these actions as evil and those murdered as innocent. Yet this, these sinful actions move God's purposes forward. The text provides a good chance to reflect on God's providence. It's in your bulletin. Providence has been defined as the benef uh, beneficent outworking of God's sovereignty, whereby all events are directed and disposed to bring about the, those purposes of glory and good for which the universe was made. These events include the actions of free agents, which while remaining free, personal and responsible, are also the intended actions of those agents. While often Christians think of providence in terms of fortunate terms of events that God directs, usually providence involves God's use of human sinful actions. Why would I be so audacious to say that God's providence deals with human sinful actions? Because we're all sinners. Everything, we're sinners. That's all he's got to work with is sinful people. And yet God uses them to accomplish his will. Some of you right now are right before hitting the panic button over what's going on in our culture, in our, our country, in our world. And I'm, I'm right behind you. I may not have my hand out of my pocket yet. Some of you are right here ready to hit the panic button. But you need to remember something. God is sovereign. He's sovereign. And he will use the wicked acts of sinful men to further his purposes. You can't stop him. You can't beat him. You can't undo him. God will accomplish all his heart desires. And it doesn't matter who's occupying what particular seat of power. God's will. You need to hope in that and not what you can see. You have to learn to hope in God. Your hope has to be in God. He's the only one that has the power to accomplish it. And that doesn't mean that you don't vote your conscience. You certainly do. That doesn't mean that you take act, don't take activity to deal with some of those issues. You certainly do. But when push comes to shove, 
when it all hits the wall, you better find yourself at rest in the arms of the sovereign God who loved you so much that he delivered his own son up to wicked men who nailed him to a cross and crucified him, which was the most evil and wicked act in the history of the universe. And yet out of that evil, historical, wicked act, he saves people like you and me. Thus, the wisdom of God. Now, that's why I can get up in the morning. And that's why I can hear bad news. I can read about bad news. I can find myself disagreeing. I, I was just, well, I won't say that because somebody might watch. So <laughs> I got to remember I'm on television here. Uh, I'm going to edit that one out, okay? But... Uh, that's what had happened. You know, you remember Joseph, and, and I'll close with this. You remember Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was Jacob's favorite son who had received the coat of many colors. And uh, some people have said that I don't see where Jacob ever sinned. Well, then you never had a brother before. Because if, if I got a coat of many colors and my brothers didn't, you better believe they'd know about it. I'd be showing them every day, look what daddy gave me. You got nothing. And so Joseph gets kicked out of the house for whatever reason, or he's out to go find his brothers. They found him, sold him to some Midianites, sent him to Egypt. And if that hadn't happened, Israel would have ceased to be because later on they have a famine. They have to go to Egypt. And eventually De Joseph confronts his brothers in a very moving scene and says, what you did to me, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save much people alive. You see, you've got to put on a new pair of glasses when you're looking at God and when you're looking at the world. And, and the only reason I can go to sleep at night and the only reason I can get up in the morning with hope is because I know who wins in the end and I know who's sitting on the throne and I know what's going to happen. And though it grieves my heart and weighs me down sometimes to live in this world, it's not forever going to be like this. One day, this world will be the way it's supposed to be. Right now, it is not. Don't put your hope in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. So much wisdom, so much truth packed into great stories that we can learn such great things about our Father, the, our, our beloved Savior, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that what has been preached today will find uh, the target to encourage people and lift them up and give them a sense that you're on the throne. You are on the throne. And Father, we ask that uh, you impress that truth upon us all. Now, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who recognize what you gave in order to secure us as your own. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.